Micah chapter 4 and uh, the book of Acts, we're looking at the first church that consisted of uh, Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, the uh, fulfillment of the promise of light coming to to the Gentiles. And uh, we'll look at the cooperation between the church in Jerusalem and the church in, in Antioch as the Gentiles bring sin gifts to to Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy. So Micah chapter 4 verse 1, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for who you are, Lord, and we're thankful for your grace and your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, Lord. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we do lift up these requests that we've discussed this morning, Lord. We pray for Tiffany and pray that she would be a candidate for that surgery, the surgeon be willing to perform it, and we pray that it would be successful and she would receive complete and total healing and complete recovery. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to uh, grant her to be cancer-free, Lord. And we do pray for Chad and his his treatments, Lord. We ask for healing and recovery for him, Lord, and that you would minister your mercy and grace to him as well. And Lord, we continue to pray for Job and for Abby and Jordan as they uh, seek to meet his needs and the care team as they uh, follow and evaluate him, Lord, we pray that very soon he would be able to uh, uh, to eat normally and to uh, to have a full and prosperous life. And, and we're thankful for your your uh, your healing and your provision for us, Lord. And we thank you uh, for the healing that we receive from Jesus. And it's by His stripes that we are healed. And Lord, we know that. Uh, Ultimately, perfect healing comes when we are in your presence uh, uh, after the resurrection with new bodies and we look forward uh, to that glorious day where there'll be no crying, no suffering, no sorrow, no sadness, no death, no curse of sin. And Lord, we have gathered together this morning to uh, offer you our worship, Lord. We pray that you would be exalted and glorified and we're thankful for your your glory and your grace that you have manifested to us in so many different ways, Lord. And we're thankful for the ministry of your Spirit to lead us into truth and to uh, also enable us and empower us to worship you in spirit and truth. So, Lord, may we cooperate with the Holy Spirit this day and offer you worship that is glorifying to you and transforming for us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I invite you to take out your hymnals and turn with me to hymn number 300. As we continue to worship, take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. Continuing to look at the church at Antioch, and we've seen as we're going through the book of Acts, and we will continue to see as we continue through the book of Acts, that the church at Antioch was a difference-making church. It was certainly a church that made a difference. Made a difference in the lives of those who heard the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection and the offer of new life by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Certainly a, a change in those who believed and, and accepted that message, a difference. The Jewish believers were set free from trying to earn God's acceptance through observance of the law. And uh, the pagan believers, the, the Greeks, set free from uh, uh, their worship of the created thing. Instead of the Creator, all of them set free from bondage 
to sin and set free to serve the living God. Uh, certainly, the gospel they preached made a difference in the lives of those who believed. And we also saw how it made a difference in the, the community. The people in the church at Antioch were had the reputation of talking about Jesus everywhere they went, following Jesus everywhere they went, and even being transformed by discipleship to look like Jesus. And so uh, they had the reputation of being Christ's people, Christ's followers. And it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians, Christ's people, Christ's followers. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll see as we go through Acts that it was a difference-making church and sending out Barnabas and Saul, uh, later to be known as Paul and Barnabas, on their missionary journeys, taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And so the church at Antioch was a difference-making church, a church that made a difference. And we've seen they made a difference because of their evangelism, Second, we saw they made a difference because of their discipleship, their commitment to the, the teaching and the learning of the Word of God. And then today we'll see that another way they made a difference and that they were a cooperating church. Uh, they cooperated, uh, were interdependent, and had unity and interdependence with the church at Jerusalem. And so uh, uh, we'll begin reading in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. The word of the Lord says, In those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agapus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders of, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word, Lord, and we're thankful for the transforming power of your word, going forth to set us free, to set us free indeed. Set us free from our bondage, our slavery to sin, and free to serve you in, uh, in love and obedience and trust and walk by faith. And Lord, we're thankful for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit uh, working in us to make us more like Jesus. And Lord, we're also thankful for your Spirit calling us together in a, as a church, calling us together as members of community of grace to covenant together with one another to be your people in this place, to be Christ's people, Christ's followers in your church in this place at this time. And Lord, we're also thankful for calling us to cooperate with other churches that believe the Bible and preach the gospel. And we're thankful for churches that we can partner with and cooperate with. Lord, we pray for Redeemer Church down in Columbus today as they meet, that you would be pleased to uh, uh, prosper them and find them faithful in preaching the gospel and, and teaching the Bible. And Lord, add to their number those that are being saved. Lord, we're thankful for the ministry of James Clardy at First Baptist Aberdeen. And we pray for them today as they worship and as they meet, that you would grant grace and that uh, your word would go forth and do works in the lives of those people. Lord, we're thankful for Brother Wes at Jones Chapel and thankful for uh, partners in the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to prosper the churches in our county and in our community. And Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to meet together to worship. And we pray that you would grant us, uh, grant us grace as we hear. And may your spirit help us to know and understand the truth. And then may you help us as we seek to walk in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, here at Community of Grace Baptist Church, we are uh, uh, a cooperating church. We believe as Baptists, we believe every church is an independent church, autonomous, under the lordship of Christ, ruled by its officers, uh, deacons, and served by, uh, well, led by the, the elders served by the deacons and ruled by the congregation. We believe that uh, 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 churches are self-governing and autonomous under the lordship of Christ. But we also believe that it's important that churches cooperate with one another, that churches cooperate together. And so we, as Community of Grace, we cooperate with about 30 churches in Monroe County. We cooperate uh, in the Mississippi Baptist Convention, and we cooperate through 
the cooperative program with the Southern Baptist Convention. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on in the, the Southern Baptist Convention today. But the, uh, the important thing is that churches, 46,000 churches across our country, come together and pool their resources to accomplish what no one of those churches can accomplish on their own. We've got 5,000 career missionaries uh, throughout the world through the International Mission Board and another 5,000 career missionaries in, the, in North America uh, taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got six seminaries across our country. And uh, while Southern Baptist churches comprise about 10% of the churches in America, actually 30% of the seminary students attend a Southern Baptist seminary. And so uh, we cooperate to educate the, the future pastors, the future ministers in our churches through those seminaries. And so all of those things come together because of our cooperation with other churches. Churches who, like us, affirm the Baptist faith and message, believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and that it is sufficient, and believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone and that we cannot save ourselves by being religious or joining a church, uh, but God in His grace became a man in Christ Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against all who believe. God raised Him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted, and He calls all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And when they are born again by the Holy Spirit, they repent and are born again to new life, everlasting life with God. And so we recognize the importance of cooperation. Cooperation with other churches that believe the Bible, that preach the gospel, and within those cooperating churches there is a unity and an interdependence, recognizing that no one church can do everything that is needed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we cooperate with other like-minded believers to fulfill that mission. And we see that the church in Antioch was a cooperating church. We've talked about three of the characteristics of this difference-making church. They were evangelistic. They talked about Jesus where they went and what they did. Their ordinary casual conversation was about Jesus, and they were committed to discipleship. When those new believers came to their church, there was systematic teaching and instruction and encouragement by a, a, a plurality of godly teachers. And they were transformed by God's grace so that they were called Christ people. And today we will look at the third characteristic of this difference-making church, the church in Antioch was a cooperating church. And we'll see two ways, uh, two ways that this cooperation, two aspects of this cooperation uh, with the church at Jerusalem. At this point, we only know about two churches in the, in the world. <laughs> at this point in the book of Acts, the church at Jerusalem, uh, the church where, uh, that was born on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and the 120 believers and people from all over had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the, the Feast of Pentecost and they, were, uh, they heard the gospel preached in the language they've been speaking their whole lives. Uh, they were born again, converted by God's grace through faith in Jesus and the church in Jerusalem was established. And then after the uh, death of Stephen in Jerusalem, a great wave of persecution set out, led by Saul that we read about in our text today. Uh, uh, and the believers began to scatter. And they scattered as far as Antioch. And where they went, they spoke the good news of Jesus. And God was pleased to bring converts to uh, establish, to plant a church in Antioch. The first church that had Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians together in the same church. And we see that this is a difference-making church. And one of the ways was through cooperation, and they was cooperation with the church at Jerusalem. We see two aspects of that co cooperation. First, Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem, sent gifted men to Antioch. The church at Jerusalem, the first aspect of their cooperation was from the church at Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem had an abundance of gifted men 
the twelve apostles were all still there. Barnabas was there. There were other gifted leaders. There were prophets in Jerusalem. And when they heard that God was doing a great work in, in uh, Antioch, they, sent, they first sent Barnabas. We talked about that last week. Sending Barnabas, a godly man, a gifted man, a man who was under the control of the Holy Spirit, a man who had the gift of encouragement to come alongside of those, those people, those new believers in Antioch, and can encourage them in their faith, encourage them in their walk, encourage them to do that which is pleasing to God, encourage them in their discipleship. And, and uh, Barnabas is also a humble man, and he went and got Saul, a man with different gift mixes. Uh, Barnabas was a, an encourager, and, and, and Saul had uh, more teaching gifts and more uh, proclamation gifts, the gift of evangelism, and he went and he got them. They came together, and they discipled the church at, at, at Antioch. And so Jerusalem had an abundance of gifted men. Antioch had a need for gifted men. And so in an exercise of unity and interdependence, the church of Jerusalem sent gifted men to Antioch. One church had a surplus, another church had a need, and so the church with a surplus provided for the need of the other church and unity and interdependence. And so Jerusalem sent one of their best, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the man who the apostles had given a nickname because of his uh, gift of encouragement. He was a good man, a godly man, and a gifted man, and Jerusalem sent him to Antioch in cooperation with this new church, this new work that God was doing. Uh, they sent their best. Not only did they send Barnabas, but the text tells us in verse 27, they sent prophets. They had an abundance of prophets. And so they sent prophets to Antioch. The church at Jerusalem had prophets, an abundance. The church in Antioch didn't have any. And so what did the church at Jerusalem do? They sent prophets to Antioch. Now, when we think of prophets, generally, we rightly think of the Old Testament. We think of the Old Covenant. Uh, in the Old Covenant, there were three offices of the people of God, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king were the offices in the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant people of God. And the prophets were the ones who would speak forth the Word of God. Uh, we think of prophets in the Old Testament. We see them through kings, Elijah and Elisha. And, and there's actually 17 of the 39 books of the Old Testament uh, are books written by prophets, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And so uh, the, the, the office of prophet was an important office in the Old Testament people of God. God would call forth prophets. He would give them direct revelation, and they would have the responsibility of speaking a word that came from God. Uh, you know a prophetic work when the prophet says, Thus saith the Lord. He is delivering a message directly from God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, some of those prophecies, many of those prophecies were recorded for us in the books of the Old Testament, in the books that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, but the Old, Old Testament people of God believed that the gift of prophecy would cease. In fact, I believe it's Micah that said a famine was coming but not a famine of food like Agabus talks about in Acts, but a famine of hearing the Word of God. And so they believed that after the exile, prophecy would cease for a time, and it would be revived with the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the promised one, the promised son of David. And that's exactly what happened in the, in the, in the Scripture, in the, in, in the history of the people of God. After Malachi... We've talked about this. We studied through the minor prophets. We got to Malachi, and with the closing of Malachi's prophecy, there was 400 years of silence, 400 years of prophetic silence, 400 years when God did not call a prophet, 400 years when there was a famine of hearing the Word of God. And that famine was broken with the arrival of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the first prophet that God had called in over 400 years, John the Baptist comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, and he was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah. And so prophecy revived with the arrival of John the Baptist. And then Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, the Word of God in the flesh, came with a prophetic ministry speaking forth the Word of God. When Jesus, who is God, spoke, He was speaking God's Word. 
And so just as the Old Testament people of God expected, the gift of prophecy ceased for a time, but it revived with the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah. And then uh, after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and spent 40 days with His people, He ascended into heaven and 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers and, and Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stands up at that time and says that this is that that Joel has talked about. Joel said that when Messiah comes, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And so the coming of, of the gift of prophecy was proof, evidence, scriptural evidence, scriptural proof that the Messiah had come, that the Christ had come, and His name was Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And so the gift of prophecy came to, to, uh, uh, to show that Messiah, the Christ, had come. And that gift of prophecy continues until the writing, the completion of the Word of God. There were three Old Testament offices of the people of God, prophet, priest, and king. And all three of those offices are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have uh, a king over the people of God anymore. There is no pope. The pope there is a pope, but it's not a biblical office. <laughs> there, is no, there is no king. There is no monarch over the people of God. Uh, the, there are autonomous churches under the leadership of, of elders served by deacons, ruled by their congregations. There is no king because Jesus is the king. King Jesus is the fulfillment of uh, that Old Testament office. There are no priests because Jesus is the great high priest who made the once and for all sacrifice and went in and, and, and offered His own blood and then sat down at the right hand of the Father as our great and sympathetic high priest. The office of priest is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus as is the office of prophet. Jesus, the prophet, brought the Word of God and His apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote God's final Word and with the closing of the book of Revelation saying nothing to be added to this book the office of prophet had ceased having been fulfilled in Jesus Jesus the final and perfect revelation of God. And so in the between time of uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the writing of the Scripture, the office of prophet was an office in the, the early church until it ceased with the, the writing of the New Testament. And that's what we see here in verse 27. Prophets sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. Jerusalem had a lot of prophets, and uh, you know they couldn't all talk, they couldn't all speak in the congregation at the same time. Paul lay, lay, lays down instructions for everything being done decently in order, you know, and uh, only one can speak at a time, only one or two at a whole service, and so they got a whole bunch of frustrated prophets. <laughs> they got they got a surplus of prophets. They all want to preach, and only one or two can preach in a service. So what did the church in Jerusalem do? Well, let's send some of these prophets over to Antioch and let them speak forth God's word. And so that's exactly what happened. So they sent prophets. They had a surplus. Antioch had a need. The church that had too many sent the, to the church that didn't have enough. And so this prophet comes, and uh, one of them, verse 28, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And so th this is actually unusual. Most of the New Testament prophets, most of their mission was not necessarily predictive, but it was in teaching, admonishing, instructing, encouraging, comforting the people of God. The, the, most of their work was to, to speak God's Word, to encourage, to edify, to build up the church, and it was not necessarily predictive. And so this prophecy of Agabus is, is unique, is distinct. Most of the words were just to admonish, to encourage, to comfort, to come alongside most of the work of the prophet. But this is actually predictive, and that's because of God's sovereignty and God's providence. God uh, was orchestrating events that would show the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch that they were united and interdependent. God was going to bring a famine. He was going to bring a famine, a time when there would be a lack of real food. 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, he sent uh, 400 years of uh, famine of hearing God's Word. But now it's going to be a famine. It's going to be a time when all over all the earth, there's not going to be enough food. 
And this is actually one of the uh, things that is historically verifiable that shows us the authority of the Scripture. You can read external sources, and they talk about the famine that occurred during the reign of Claudius Caesar. This is uh, historically verifiable in outside primary sources. But Agabus stands up and he predicts that this famine is going to come. And so uh, that leads to the second way that these churches cooperated. The first aspect, that Jerusalem had a lot of prophets. And I didn't have any. And so Jerusalem sent the surplus of prophets and gifted men to Antioch. Barnabas, and then later the prophets. But then with this prophecy of the famine, that leads us to the second aspect of their cooperation, and it was financial cooperation. And so uh, Agabus stands up uh, through the Spirit of God. He shows there's going to be a famine throughout all the world. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so the church at Jerusalem had a surplus of gifted men. The church at Antioch didn't have any. And so the church at Jerusalem sent gifted men to Antioch. Antioch evidently had uh, more material resources. The church at Jerusalem didn't have any material resources or had less. And so the church at Antioch sent material resources, financial support to the church in Jerusalem. So that was the second aspect of their cooperation. One church had more, one church had less. The church that had more sent to the church that had less. And unity and interdependence. And again, this is God's providential working. God is going to send a famine. He sends this prophet for the express purpose of telling the church at Antioch the famine is coming in order to show these churches their need for unity and interdependence and cooperation in expanding the kingdom of God. And uh, a couple thoughts about this, uh, this second aspect of cooperation, this financial cooperation. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, number one, the, uh, the prophet told them that the famine was coming, but he did not tell them what to do about it. The prophet came and said the famine is coming, but he didn't give any instructions. He didn't say a famine is coming to Jerusalem, so give me all your money and I'll take care of it. The prophet did not say that. The prophet didn't even say, uh, y'all take up a collection, everybody get, everybody figure out how much you make and write a check for 10% and put it in and we'll make sure it takes care of it. The prophet didn't say any of those things. The prophet simply said, a famine is coming. And the people could have responded a couple of different ways. Notice what the prophet says, where's the famine going to be? Just Judea? No. There's going to be a great famine throughout all the world. There's going to be a famine throughout all the world. Now, is Antioch in the world? Yeah. And so not only is that famine going to impact Judea, Jerusalem, but it's going to impact the whole world, including Antioch. And so you could be there at the church in Antioch that day. Agabus stands up and gives his prophecy and says there's going to be a famine all over the whole world. And this comes from God. This comes from the Spirit of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. A famine is coming all over the whole world. You might be sitting there and you might think, oh wow, a famine's coming. I better make sure that I take care of myself. I better make sure that I set aside everything I've got extra and I put it aside for... The famine that's coming. I need to be like, uh, like, like Joseph, and I need to, to store up all this stuff so that when I don't have stuff, I can go to my freezer and get out exactly what I need to take care of me when the famine comes. I need to can, I need to freeze, I need to pack, I need to take all of my extra resources and put it aside for me. Well, that's one possible response, right? The famine's coming all over the whole world. It's going to hit us. I need to take care of me. Well, another response for the entrepreneurs in the crowd is say, oh, wow, I just got inside information. <laughs> I just got a word from the Lord that a famine's coming. And so I'm not going to set aside for me, but I'm going to set aside so that when supply goes down, demand goes up, the prices do what? 
the prices go up. So I'm going to have all this stuff that I got at this cheaper price. I'm going to store it, and when supply goes down, prices go up, I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to make a lot of money. That's one response. That's another possible response. So one is I can just take care of me, my basic needs, or no, I can take advantage of this inside information and, uh, and, and not just get by, but do really well. So the prophet just delivers a message, and the people have to respond. And the prophet doesn't suggest a response. And so some might be saying, well, boy, I need to take care of me. Others might be saying, oh, I need to build a business that's ready to take advantage of this downturn in the economy. I need to be able to take advantage of this time of inflation that's coming. Or there was a third response. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So the first thing that we see of this particular text is that God's Word demands a response. God's Word demands a response. Anytime that we come before God's Word with an open heart and an open mind, we are going to see that we fall short of God's Holy Word. And when God's Word is delivered, a response is demanded. Now, I'd usually try to suggest applications to God's Word. The prophet here did not suggest any application. He simply delivered the message, and the Holy Spirit applied it to God's, to God's heart. So I think the first takeaway from this text is when you listen to God's Word, you need to be prepared to respond. We don't just come to church to hear God's Word proclaimed, to be educated, to, to, to know the Bible better, to learn information, to learn facts. No, God's Word demands a response because we fall short of God's Holy Word and there's always something that we need to do different because we have heard God's message. Uh, a sin we need to put off or an activity, a good work we need to put on or faith we need to have, a promise we need to believe. And so when you come to church and you are hearing the proclamation of God's Word, you need to come prepared to respond prepared to, uh, for the Holy Spirit to make application of the passage to your heart and to your soul. And there's several different ways you might respond, and uh, these people responded with generosity. They did not think about themselves. They did not think about profit. They thought about others. And they purposed in their heart, and, and notice Agabus didn't say, okay, you know, Here's how you need to respond. Each of you need to take 10% and, and put it in the offering plate and we'll take care of it. No, the people just purposed in their heart to give each according to his ability. And so evidently the church at Antioch had some more affluent people or, or maybe just people who were doing well. Remember the church at Jerusalem? The church at Jerusalem was a persecuted church. You know, when they first came together, there were large numbers of people who weren't from Jerusalem at all, who had come for the observance of the Feast of Pentecost, had heard the gospel in their own language, had repented and believed, been added to the church, and many of those people went back to their homes, but also many of them probably stayed. They didn't have property, didn't have jobs. And so church took care of them. And so what happened? Well, the church... Uh, People sold their possessions, sold their property, and brought the proceeds and laid it at the hands of uh, uh, the feet of the apostles to be distributed to those that had need. That's how we first met Barnabas. And then persecution broke out, and certainly some of that persecution was probably financial. How many people probably lost their jobs because they did not go with the government or the, the ruler's mandates? Remember that the, the, they'd been mandated not to teach in the name of Jesus. They've been mandated not to uh, proclaim the gospel. They've been mandated not to speak of the resurrection. And so they were going against the mandates of their ruling officials, their ruling authorities. How many of those people lost their jobs because they refused to go along with the government mandates? How many of those people were now needy? How many people, because they had come to faith in Jesus Christ, were thrown out of their homes by their, by their parents or by their spouse? Because they, in their minds, had become blasphemers as they had embraced Jesus 
as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so the church at Jerusalem was a church that was, was you know, they, they, they'd already sold their property and distributed among the poor. And the church, you know, generosity is an important aspect of the church all through. We saw it in chapter 2 as they uh, had all things in common. People sold their possessions and shared with those. We saw it in chapter 4 as Barnabas sets that example. We saw it in chapter 6 where the church had a ministry of feeding the, the widows, distributing food to, the, to those who were widows. And so generosity has been an important part of the ministry of the church from its very beginning. Because when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, his wallet, his pocketbook comes with him. The Holy Spirit produces generosity, a love for others. The second greatest command of the law is that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And, and uh, how do you love yourself? What do you do when you're hungry? You find something to eat. You provide something for yourself to eat. And so if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, what do you do when your neighbor's hungry? You find something for them to eat. You take care of them. You're generous. The Holy Spirit produces this generosity. And so this giving was not commanded, was not commanded by the prophet. It was not commanded by the apostles. It was not commanded by the elders of the church at Antioch. It was voluntary, and it came from the love of God, from the Holy Spirit, producing a spirit of generosity in the believers. If you love God, you love God's people. And God's love is manifested in us that we don't just love in warm, fuzzy feeling, we don't just love in word, but we love in deed. And so the church in Antioch had enough. The church in Jerusalem had a need. And so the church that had enough shared with the church that had a need. God in His providence ordained these events of famine, the church becoming aware of the famine, uh, to show the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch that they were united and they were interdependent because there were a lot of things that might have divided these two churches. Church in Jerusalem's all Jewish believers. Every one of them Jewish believers. Some of them Arabic speaking, some of them Hellenists, but all Jewish believers. And I imagine the worship in Jerusalem was pretty traditional. It probably had a lot of Jewish elements maybe patterned after the worship of the, the synagogue with the readings of Scriptures and the prayers and the proclamation of the Word, the speaking of prophets and the uh, speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues. You know, it was probably a pretty, a pretty uh, traditional worship service. All these people had come out of Judaism and the structure and the tradition of Judaism. And maybe it was a, you know, a pretty structured worship service. And probably conducted in Aramaic, with some people maybe interpreting for the Hellenists, but most of the Hellenists there would also speak Aramaic. And so uh, the church was probably worshiping in Aramaic or Hebrew. Well, the church in Antioch has a combination of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. I imagine the worship in Antioch was a lot different than the worship in Jerusalem. These people hadn't grown up, and even the ones who were Jewish, most of them had grown up in the dispersion, grown up in Greek culture, in Greek language. And I imagine the church in Antioch probably worshipped in Greek and probably had a, a little less structure. These people had come out of pagan backgrounds and had, had totally different backgrounds, totally different culture. I imagine that they were in a different language, that there were different cultural elements, there was probably a different style. There were all kinds of different things, and not to mentioned the ethnicity and the rivalry between Jews and non-Jewish people, there was a whole lot of reasons that these two churches could see to not cooperate with each other. The church of Jerusalem was suspicious. Can the gospel really be preached to these Gentiles? Can they really become Christians without becoming Jews first? Can they really become Christians without being circumcised? Can they really become Christians without uh, uh, committing themselves to the Old Testament law? And these people in Antioch are thinking about the people in Jerusalem. You know, these people are all, all stuck up and they're rigid and they're un, 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 unchanging. And can they really be Christians if they can sit there and be quiet in their worship service? and have all this structure? Are they really worshiping if they're not really free to express their love for Jesus in their rigid worship services? There would be a lot of reasons that these two churches could say, no, you know, we don't have anything in common. We just do our thing, they'll do their thing. But God ordained the events that would bring these churches together and show their, were united and show their interdependence. 
And the people, when they heard of the famine coming to Jerusalem, they recognized the need of the church of Jerusalem. They purposed in their heart to voluntarily give as they could, give as they had prospered to, to help meet the need of the church that had less. The church that was more needy. And so the disciples, remember disciples, all believers in Jesus Christ, Apostles are the twelve in the book of Acts. We've talked about that quite a bit. Each disciple, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. It was voluntary, prompted by the Holy Spirit because of His work within. As they saw the need, and they were selfless and self-sacrificing, and they gave as they purposed in their heart to give, not as they were commanded or shown a duty, it came from the love of God in their hearts. And it was anticipatory. The um, famine hadn't happened yet. If the famine would have happened, they wouldn't need a prophet to tell them about it. They would need the newsman to tell them about it. (laughs) So the prophet tells them because it's predictive. And so it's anticipatory. It's coming. And so they began to set aside so that when it came, there would be the resources to meet the need. And they did it voluntarily. And also there was accountability. So they set the money aside. And what did they do? They sent it to the elders of the church at Jerusalem by their elders, Barnabas and Saul. And so they trusted it. They entrusted it to these elders. And there was accountability that the money would be spent in the way that it was needed to be spent. Distributed by those that were trusted leaders, gifted leaders, the elders of the churches worked together in this cooperation. Church in Antioch is a difference-making church. First to preach the gospel to non-Jewish people. Made a difference in the lives of people as they were set free from sin and set free to do that which is pleasing to God as they were born again to new life, everlasting life with God. And they made a difference in the community as this gospel was preached and as they were Christ followers. And they made a difference in sending out missionaries to the ends of the earth, Barnabas and Saul. They were evangelistic. They were committed to discipleship. And they were a cooperating church. They cooperated. They received help from Jerusalem. And they provided help to Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem, you know, maybe taking a risk and sending all these gifted men, sending our best out there to Antioch. And they could say, well, you know what? We're, we're sending our best. What do we get out of this? Well, when the famine came, not only they realized that they had not only given, but now they were able to receive from the church at Antioch. Uh, supporting the church at Antioch was not a curse to the Jerusalem church, but ended up being a blessing. And so it was a cooperating church. A church that had a plethora, a surplus of gifted men sent to the church that didn't have any or had few. And the church that had more material resources sent to the church that had the greater need. The spirit of cooperation. And we talked about Community of Grace Baptist Church. We're a church committed to cooperating. Cooperating with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches coming together to do what no one of us can do alone. God's churches are to have a spirit of unity and interdependence. While each church is independent, self-governing, self-ruling under the lordship of Christ and under the leadership of their elders served by their deacons, each church is independent, but each church also recognized interdependence with other churches. Just like in the, the, the ministry of discipleship, Barnabas couldn't do all that was required, and so he needed a partner when God saw Same thing with churches. No one church, no matter how big they are, no matter how affluent they are, can do everything that's needed to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to all the unreached people groups. And so what do we do? We cooperate in a spirit of interdependence. And so it's important to cooperate. And I I just personally want to thank you as members of Community of Grace for your generosity. Over these years, if we have... uh, 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 on a non-traditional path, you know, and, 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 and three locations and uh, seeing a lot of our younger members move away because of jobs out of town. 
the faithfulness of your giving, your generosity over these years that this work is still going and still uh, thriving and prospering is a, is a testimony to your generosity and your faithfulness and your, uh, your uh, cooperation with the Holy Spirit uh, to ensure that this ministry, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching ministry, continues to go, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for the commitment to cooperate and to send through the cooperative program to send money to the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board and to the Redeemer Church in Columbus as we testify to our unity and interdependence with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. And and notice I say Bible-believing, gospel-preaching. That's got to be the basis for our cooperation. If there's a church that doesn't believe the Bible, that's not preaching the gospel, we need to kick down the gates and set those captives free. Don't cooperate with churches that aren't preaching the gospel. But those that are, we can cooperate with them. And I thank you for your generosity and your commitment to cooperation. And we need to be discerning of those ministries with which we choose to cooperate. And that includes the Southern Baptist Convention as it undergoes some changes. We need to be discerning in our cooperative dollars, our cooperative giving. Second thing I think we see in this text is uh, the Word of God, I already mentioned it, the Word of God demands a response. We always need to come prepared to respond. And when we come and hear God's Word proclaim, or even uh, sitting on your, your porch or your kitchen table with your coffee and your Bible, God's Word always demands a response. And the, the preacher might not suggest the application that you need to respond, but the Holy Spirit uh, calls us to respond to His Word just as He did these people. The Word of God went out, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit within, uh, determined the response that the people would make. And they responded out of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the generous spirit, the love of God that had been planted in their hearts by, their, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They responded to God's Word and they responded in a good and godly way. And God's love in us produces love for others, produces a spirit of generosity. shouldn't have to be a duty, an obligation, a compulsion. But each, according to his ability, voluntary, voluntarily giving to meet the need that's there. And so, uh, uh, the giving, not a duty, not an obligation, not a work by which we buy God's acceptance because we are saved by God's grace through faith alone. God does not love you anymore when you give more money. He loves you because He's accepted you in Christ Jesus. He loves you because you are His. You are His child, redeemed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And no amount of money that you can give to make God love you any more than He already does. And if you're not in Christ, giving money is not going to cause God to accept you. He accepts you by... His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus already paid the debt that you owed that you could never pay. And so don't think you can buy God's acceptance by giving money. Run to God and cry out for mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So this difference-making church was a cooperating church. And we need to look for opportunities to cooperate with our churches. Where do we have abundance and another church has a need where do we have a need and another church has an abundance where what are the opportunities that we have to show our unity in the gospel our unity standing on the word of god showing that unity and that interdependence not you know so often we have a tendency to view other churches as the competition Thinking, well, you know, if, we, if I cooperate with them, it might cost me. 
And certainly the church at Jerusalem could have thought that. Man, if we send our best guys out there, well, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? They sent their best guys out there. And when they had a need, guess what? That church was able to meet their need. So we don't need to view other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches as the competition, but as partners. Because it's not about building a name for ourselves. It's not about building our kingdom, building an empire for ourselves. It's about seeing the lost come to know Jesus, the saved, discipled, and matured in their faith, and the kingdom of God taken, the message of the kingdom of God taken to the ends of the earth. We can't do that by ourselves. We can only do that by cooperating with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Let's pray together. Lord God, once again, we stand convicted before Your Word, recognizing that Your Word demands a response from us. And again, Lord, I thank You for the spirit of cooperation and community of grace. And Lord, I pray for... uh, guidance of how we might cooperate and show unity and interdependence even more and greater than what we do. Again, Lord, we pray for the churches of Monroe Baptist Association. We pray for the churches of Mississippi Baptist Convention. We pray for the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. We pray for the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, the six Southern Baptist seminaries. And Lord, we're thankful to be able to come together with 46,000 other churches and do what we can't do by ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you open the door for other opportunities for us to cooperate. And Lord, again, I thank you for the generous spirit of the saints at Community of Grace. And I pray that we would grow in our generosity and we would grow in our love for each other and our love for our neighbors. And that we would seek opportunity to cooperate and to meet needs. Help us to be sensitive to the needs of one another and others that we might know the right way to cooperate and to to give where we've got enough to somebody who does not. Grant us wisdom and grace in that. And Lord, we thank you for your love that has been freely given to us. And help us now to freely give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I'm going to encourage you to turn in your hymnal.